All right, we, we've left off in your notes. Uh, I've got around page 28 or so. Um, we've been talking about transcendental argumentation. Uh, the idea of a transcendental argument for our purposes here is an argument that, that Christianity must be true because even the unbeliever's position demands that Christianity is true for the unbeliever to say what he wants to say. Right? That's what we, we talked about last week. That the unbeliever wants to tell you that we should order our lives by reason. Right? And, and, and our contention is he couldn't say that unless the Christian worldview was already true. Right? For him to say we should we should base our lives on reason, well, I don't necessarily disagree with what he's saying. What I want to ask is how on his worldview does he justify that? Because what we saw last week is that on his worldview, reason is is it doesn't mean anything, right? If I if I'm a sack of atoms uh, colliding around, uh, what's going on in my brain? is not something that can be held to a standard. Does that make sense? If I'm just a sack of atoms and, and you know, I, I, what, what I've uh, heard, heard someone say, my, my brain's just doing what brains do with this temperature, right, and, and in these conditions. Um, that it can't be something I, I'm held, see, reason um, implies standards, it implies accountability doesn't it? It implies a sense of, what's our, our word? Ought. Right? It implies a sense of ought. The unbeliever is saying, um, you should live by reason. Well, there's already an ought. And what he wants to say is, is living by reason means you don't accept anything that you don't have evidence for. Well, there's a why. What? And, and you, you have to be careful in how you say it so you don't sound like an obnoxious two-year-old. Right? Why? Why? <laughs> but what you want to challenge the unbeliever is, is to try to justify all the things that he assumes given his premises. Why does he assume them again? Let's uh, review a bit. Why does the unbeliever assume that rationality holds or that morality is true? Why does the unbeliever think these things? Alternately. Things that can prove? Well, what... The unbeliever believes that there is truth. The unbeliever believes that there is morality. Why does the unbeliever believe these things, ultimately? Because he's the image of God. He's the image of God. He's an image bearer. And, and so he finds these things inescapable. And, and, and what we've talked about is, even if he denies them in what he says, right? The unbeliever says, oh, morality is totally relative. Suddenly, when, it, when, when something negative happens to him, he doesn't think it's relative anymore, right? When someone, when someone scratches his car's paint in the parking lot, suddenly he doesn't think it's just all relative. Um, suddenly he, he thinks that there ought to be justice in the universe. Um, and his worldview doesn't account for that. And, and so he can deny these things. In, in fact, he can sit and deny that there's any such thing as truth. But his denial that truth exists is a truth contention, right? He is making a truth claim. 
And, and so what we're doing, okay, here's another important concept, another vocab word or vocab phrase, I suppose. What we're doing is performing an internal critique, internal critique of the unbeliever's worldview. What, I, what I'm doing, so we talked earlier, when we, we talked about evidential apologetics, that what I don't want to do is go over to the unbeliever's worldview and try to build on that up to God, right? Remember we talked about that. That if I, if I go over to the unbeliever's worldview and I say, let's assume some sort of neutrality here, let's all just be equals, we're truth seekers, and let's just look at the evidence and that will get us to God. And so that's going to create problems for us. And we talked about why that, that is. I'm not going to review all that. But there is a sense when we're doing apologetics in this way, that I do go over to the unbeliever's worldview. And, and this is why I go over to the unbeliever's worldview. What I want to do is say, all right, for the sake of argument, Mr. Unbeliever, let's assume that what you, what you believe about reality is true. Let's, let's assume that there is no God, um, that, that we are here as a product of, of purely natural forces, and, and just as a practical tip, let me, let me encourage you, word your opponent's position in a way that he would agree with. Okay? It, it, just practically speaking, it doesn't help any argument, uh, and, and I would say particularly an argument when you're dealing with something as contentious as Christianity, to present your opponent's position in a way that mocks it, you know, Okay, let's let's assume that you're right. You know that we're just all really a bunch of monkeys. You know, okay. You may think that that's what evolution teaches, but is that going to be helpful when you're talking to the evolutionist? It, it really isn't. Yeah, I just just practically speaking, when you're trying to say, okay, let's let's talk about your worldview, present their worldview in terms that they would acknowledge. Does that make sense? I think that's just that's just helpful. It doesn't help to mock them in in, in this scenario. So um, I go to Mr. Unbeliever and I say, all right, let's let's assume your worldview is true. Let's assume that you know there was a Big Bang. We have no idea what was beyond the Big Bang, but the Big Bang happened, and and there are natural forces, there are laws in nature that have formed things the way they are now. What, what is the consequence of that? Now, do you see the difference between this and evidentialist apologetics? An evidentialist says, let's take where you are and build up to Christianity. I, as a presuppositionalist, will say, I'm going to assume your worldview for sake of argument and show that if I assume your worldview, what happens? Well, it's reduced to absurdity. Right? Nothing you've been talking about. If... Mr. Unbeliever, if things are the way you say they are, you can't say they're that way. Does that make sense? You, your, your actual statement of it is, is self-refuting. Your, your whole system collapses in on itself. So, so that's, what it, that's what we call an internal critique. Uh, that's going to be an important concept for us because what we're going to be looking to do with every non-Christian or, or sub-Christian um, worldview, anytime we've got an, an evangelistic encounter when, when people are challenging the validity of Christianity, right? 
and, and the conversation turns toward apologetics. Even practically, it is very helpful to move off a pure defensive position, right? You ever been in a conversation where you're outnumbered three to one? You ever been there? You know, you get a, a discussion on politics, and you're the you're the only conservative, and you're talking to three liberals, and that just doesn't go well. Just it, it doesn't. Uh, you know, because they they bounce their arguments off each other and, and, you know, just as you try to answer one, another one comes from a different angle. It's very difficult when you're on a pure, purely defensive position um, to, to extend the sports metaphor. It's very difficult when you're only on defense to score points. <laughs> right? What presuppositionalism allows us to do is say, okay, hang on a second. I, I'm, I understand some of your questions about Christianity and we'll get to that. But what I want to do is ask you about your worldview, right? Because you're denying mine, but, but the issue here is that not that you're neutral and I'm not, we've got an opposition of two worldviews here, right? The unbeliever is not the neutral one in the discussion. It's not like I'm the Christian and he's undecided. I'm the Christian and he is, biblically, the anti-Christian. Does that make sense? Now, his form of anti-Christianity may be different from this other guy's form of anti-Christianity, which is why I'm going to start asking questions. So, so what do you believe? You know, you, you deny Christianity. Uh, what, what do you think is real? You know, do, do you think morality exists? Uh, and you'll get from different people different answers. Some people will say, oh, no, morality doesn't exist at all. Other people will say, oh, yeah, you know, there, there has to be morality, you know, but, and, and then maybe they have very strong, maybe they have very strong conservative moral positions. Maybe they have positions on morality that are very definitive, but are very liberal, right? We've already talked about that. There are, you know, various uh, political causes that are very liberal, but they, they believe that they must be the case. You need to ask questions. And, and as you ask questions, um, what you're looking for are their ultimate commitments, right? What, what is ultimately true? Who is the ultimate authority? For most unbelievers, who is the ultimate authority in their life? Th themselves, right? And what you want to keep challenging them is they're running back and forth between rationality and irrationality, right? That, that that unbeliever, as his final reference point, is absolutely convinced of certain things and is absolutely convinced that you can't be absolutely convinced about some other things, right? He believes, he, he knows this certainly, and he believes you can never know that certainly. And, and what you'll find is he'll run back and forth to the pole of ultimate irrationality when you assert something and he says, oh, you can't know that. And, and then when, when it suits his cause, he'll run back to the other pole. Oh, yeah, we can, we definitely, this definitely is the case. God is definitely cruel, right? Well, how do you, how do you know what, what it means for, for something to be cruel? And, and he starts stumbling all over himself. But, you know, it's running back and back and forth. And what you want to show is that, is that his whole worldview is a mirage. That, that as you make him self-conscious about his position,
Practically speaking, again, very practically, in an apologetic encounter, my goal is for the, the, the unbeliever to walk away fighting himself, not me. Does that make sense? That, that it, I, I, I rarely want to create a setup where, where he and I are going at it. Rather, what, I, what I'm trying to do is get him to question things that he was convinced of all along. And, and, and as he walks away, it, you know, assuming that he hasn't been converted, he walks away going, my worldview is a mess. It's a shambles. It, it doesn't hold together. Right? And again, the whole time I'm presenting him, yes, your worldview doesn't hold together. The things that you know are true, though, only make sense on my worldview, on the Christian <coughs> That's the heart of a transcendental argument and an internal critique. You see the, both sides of it. I go, I, I, uh, some, some presuppositional apologetics have, apologists have used the verses in Proverbs, where you've got two verses, one right after another, that sound like they contradict, right? Answer a fool according to his folly, and don't answer a fool according to his folly. Right, one right after, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And, and, and I think there is some instruction there for how we do apologetics. That the unbeliever is speaking biblically foolishness. Right? And that's not, we're not name-calling there. But, but in his rejection of God as authority, he has taken a position that, that is absurd. His position, sin is absurd. It is irrational at, at its very heart. I mean, when you think about how did Eve, how did Adam do that, can you come up with a rational answer? And the answer is no, you can't. It's irrational. Sin is absurd. It is foolish. And so the unbelieving position is foolish. Well, there are times that we answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Are there fools that are wise in their own eyes? Absolutely. And, and, and for those, I want to get onto their foolish worldview and show them how badly their system self-destructs. Right? Uh, other fools, I don't answer according to their folly, or maybe the same fool, after I've answered them according to his folly, I then present to him the Christian worldview where I'm not answering him according to his folly, I'm not trying to build on his presuppositions, I am then declaring the word of God to him, his need to repent and submit to the Lord Jesus, um, that, that God is angry at him, but there is pardon in Christ. Okay? So I've got both of those steps there. That's transcendental argumentation. Um, again, the, heart, the reason it's transcendental is I'm telling the unbeliever he can't even disagree with me without assuming that I'm right. You see how, how compelling that is? That's powerful stuff. That, that even for him to meaningfully disagree with me, he's got to assume the Christian position. And so his, his whole argument is, is, is severely problematic. Are there any questions at this point? It is the sort of thing, and I think you're probably picking up on this, presuppositional apologetics is the sort of thing that the more you're exposed to it, the more you get it. 
you ever, have you had the moment where you're like, I get it, I think, and then it goes away, <laughs> and then it comes back? It, it is like that, okay? It, it, for, for a variety of reasons. One, it is there is a bit of philosophy to it. The, the other part is you're being challenged to think in a way that is probably a new way to think. Um, and, and just, again, practically, to come back to this again, it's very useful then, practically, doing apologetics this way, particularly for, for an atheist who is uh, well acquainted with arguing with Christians, because you're very likely bringing to him an argument that he is not prepared for at all. Uh, I've mentioned on a couple of occasions, and, and I'll recommend it here again, the audio of Greg Bonson debating Gordon Stein. Um, and in that debate, it was clear that Stein was very well prepared for a normal defense of Christianity, the traditional theistic argument. Because in his opening statement, Bonson gave his opening statement, Stein gives his, and Stein goes point by point through, I think, 11 theistic proofs and just demolishes them. And in that whole thing, he never touches what Bonson says. And, and it it seems to take him most of the debate even to get what Bonson said. <laughs> and by that point, it was clearly too late. I mean, Bonson just shredded him in this debate. And it, it really is very instructive to listen to. And to listen to over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and in that debate, Bonson gives primary attention to laws of logic. That laws of logic uh, demand a Christian worldview. I, I tend to focus on moral laws. But, but any sort of universal standards, any sort of ought, right? Laws of logic have an ought. Moral laws have an ought. Uh, aesthetic judgments have an ought. Anytime I can drive the unbeliever to acknowledging that there's an ought, his worldview can't account for it. All right? All right. Uh, I do have here, then, on page 29, objections to transcendental arguments. I want to cover this very, very quickly. And then, we'll, and then we'll, what we're going to do is spend the rest of the hour um, and, and next week beginning to discuss objections, uh, common objections to the Christian faith. Common objections to the Christian faith. Um, and that, then we have Thanksgiving break. And then I think we have maybe two or three weeks uh, in December, probably. Um, and, and during that time, I, I want to start looking at how to uh, address very specific belief systems. Uh, let, me, let me just tip my hand a little bit as to where we're going. Most of what we've done here has been to address what kind of unbeliever? An atheistic sort of unbeliever or, or a, a, an unbeliever who uh, is in no way strongly religious, right? Maybe he's a theist of some sort, but he's the sort of theist who uh, accepts God on his own terms, right? That's a different sort of unbeliever than a committed Muslim, right? A committed Muslim looks at himself in relation to the Quran the same way we look at ourselves in relation to the scripture. Okay? Um, and so if you asked him, are you the ultimate authority in your life? He would say, no. My, my uh, mosque and my, my scripture and Allah are my ultimate authorities. 
and so what we're going to see is our approach is going to be a little bit different with the unbeliever who has ceded his ultimate authority somewhere else. Uh, but, but the sort of unbeliever that I think is most common in, in most of our situations is, is the unbeliever who himself is his own reference point. Whether, whether he's an avowed atheist or whether he's some sort of you know, mushy theist, oh, I believe in God, but it's not really that important to me. It, for him, he's still his own ultimate authority. And, and in, that, in that setting, I think the basic framework of apologetics that we've talked about already is going to be useful. Right? So, uh, quickly through these objections, uh, answering two primary objections to Christianity, and then going on the offensive against various forms of unbelief. That's the layout for the rest of the class. So first, it, it denies knowledge to the unbeliever. Um, right? we, we have said, Mr. Unbeliever, given your own worldview, if, if your brain is just atoms bouncing around in your head, nothing that's in there can rightly be called knowledge. Right? It's just atoms bouncing around in your head. Uh, and, and you can pretend, you can make believe. Um, there's, a, there's a website, I can't give you the address right off the top of my head, but they, they ask nine, I think it is, maybe 12 noted thinkers of today, does the universe have it a purpose? Does, does the universe have a purpose? And, and their answers range from absolutely not to, to absolutely. Um, but most, most of the secular answers range from not likely to know. Because if, if it's just, if, if, the, if the universe at the end, when the sun burns out and everything's dark, did it mean anything in a godless universe? Well, it was some really fascinating atoms bouncing around, wasn't it? And that's about it. Um, and, and in that universe, nothing means anything. The, the big picture doesn't mean anything, and any meaning on the, the small scale is just made up. Right? In fact, some of, some of the people make that answer. That, that Does the universe have a meaning? And, and their answer is, well, no, not really, but we have to pretend that it does. Right? And given an, given an unbelieving worldview, that's really all you're left with. Um, but if we're just pretending it does, um, in, this, in this debate with uh, Wilson and Hitchens that I mentioned last week, uh, this collision movie, um, Wilson, who is the Christian, says, I'm tired of atheists who don't have the guts to be atheists. Right? And, and the atheist who says, uh, it's all a chance, but there is meaning, he doesn't have the guts to be a real atheist. That makes sense. doesn't have the courage of his conviction. Um, and, and so what we're doing, when we're doing apologetics, is highlighting that. So, does the unbeliever know anything? Again, we've already talked about that second paragraph there. It's interesting to note uh, this problem is not likely unique to presuppositionalism. Um, I'm inclined to say, uh, let me summarize this quickly, uh, any epistemology, any theory of knowledge, if it's the true one, those who deny it don't have knowledge. Does that make sense at all? Um, 
I don't want to I don't want to pursue this too far, but but there are people that have rejected presuppositionalism and what Van Til has said about apologetics, just because it's so ridiculous that those who would be unbelievers wouldn't have knowledge. I, I don't think it's unique to Van Til. Uh, I, I cite here John Frame's book, Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. He has a very good discussion there. If you're interested in pursuing this, again, the comparison that we made before, does the unbeliever know anything? The comparison we made is, does, can the unbeliever do good? Right? Remember that discussion? Can the unbeliever do And what was our answer? Exactly. Yes and no. Um, that... that are there unbelievers that are that are good fathers and good husbands and good employees and good citizens? Definitely, there are. Um, you know, there there are unbelievers that that make this world a better place. Is any of their goodness acceptable before God as righteousness? And the answer is no. And so, when we ask, can the unbeliever do good? Our answer is sort of, on a zoomed-in human level. But when you look at it, ultimately, it all dissolves. I think the unbeliever's knowledge is the same way. That does the unbeliever, can the unbeliever find his car in the parking lot? Does he remember where he left it? Does the unbelieving child rightly memorize his multiplication tables? Well, yeah. Is that knowledge true? And what we said is, ultimately, because his knowledge, he assumes his car's in the parking lot, whether or not God exists, his belief is actually false. Because his car couldn't be in the parking lot, whether or not God exists. Right? This is what we talked about God being the all-conditioner. Okay? So, do I deny all knowledge to the unbeliever? And the answer is, sort of. Ultimately, yes. But on the way that most people are talking about it, No. I, I, I'm not saying anything so foolish as that the unbeliever is just, his mind is full of gibberish. Something along those lines. Right. Uh, second objection, next page. Second objection to presuppositionalism. It is too philosophical and complex. Is anyone feeling that pain? Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right. So the, the argument is, I could never actually use this in a conversation. I don't get it. This is so way out there. Most people would never. It's so much easier to say, look at all the design in the leaf. Surely there must be a God, right? Um, here's, here's my counter argument. At, it, at its simplest level, uh, I'll, I'll steal this from Greg Bonfield. The simplest presentation of a presuppositional apologetic is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for what? The Bible tells me so. You see, that's assuming I know certain things because God has revealed them, and I sit under God's authority. And in fact, a straightforward presentation of the gospel is a presuppositional apologetic. It is telling the unbeliever, here is the authority of the Word of God, and you must submit to this. Um... Obviously, things can get more complex from that point. I, I would argue that the beauty of presuppositionalism is I can go from Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, to dealing with the deepest thinker in the university 
with the same structure of argument. Um, and it's adaptable to all of those. Uh, so yes, there is a philosophical complexity to the sort of apologetic we've been talking about here, but here, here's the reality. How often in your presentation of the gospel will you need this level of philosophical complexity? And the answer is very rarely. Now, d depending on your walk of life, right? If 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 you work, um, in, you know, my dad my dad's first job was he or my dad got his start in the auto industry, painting cars in a body shop, right? And my guess is, it had he been a Christian at the time, he was not a believer at the time. Had he been a Christian, the conversations about Christianity in the body shop were probably not at the level of high level epistemology. It's a guess. Again, there are exceptions. I don't want to stereotype everything because sometimes you're in a body shop and you talk to a guy and you're like, whoa, this guy has done a lot of reading, right? Or a lot of thinking. Um, if, however, you're a, you're a professor at a local community college or, or you live in Ann Arbor, are you likely to hit these sorts of discussions more regularly in a coffee shop in Ann Arbor? Yeah, probably with a kid who thinks he knows more than he does, right? And you're all looking at me like, yeah, you're a kid. <laughs> um, the reality is we won't often have to get to this level. But here's, here's the thing we talked about at the very beginning of class. Do you find apologetics helpful for your own Christian walk? That, that knowing that those answers are there, I find to be very reassuring. Um, and so I think it's good for us to, to have these conversations, to, to do this study. Uh, and we already mentioned C, it does not work, or evidentialism is more effective. Um, and, and again, my, my problem there is we, we don't base the argument we use purely on practice. Um, I do think I do think presuppositionalism rightly handled is very effective. Um, but, but uh, you know, I, I want to be careful in saying this, but uh, Islam converted much of the known world um, in, the, in the early Middle Ages. How? At the point of the sword. It's a very convincing argument, right? Convert or I'll kill you. It's very, very compelling. I, I find it personally to be a very compelling sort of argument. And there are a number of things that I would willingly change my position on, uh, given that kind of argument. You know, I've, I've always used PCs, but if someone says, uh, you're going to buy a Mac or I'm going to shoot you in the head, I'm a Mac guy. I'm good with that. Right? <laughs> That's a compelling argument. You know, is Mac better? Yes, Mac is better <laughs> when I've got a 45 up against my skull. Somehow, I just, I see the truth. Right? I see it right there. Um, the, the fact that that's a very convincing argument does not make it a morally acceptable argument. Right? And, the, and the fact that I can uh, convince large numbers of people to embrace Christianity on the basis of bad arguments does not justify that. Now, here's, here's your problem. Now you know that they're bad arguments. <laughs> see, it was easier when you didn't know that they're bad arguments. Now you know. We've, we've gone through and, and shown, you know, hey, the design argument, very, very interesting. I think it's true, right? I think it is true that God has left evidence of design all over the place. But as an argument, going from neutrality to belief, we've seen that there's problems with it, right? 
that design isn't something that the unbeliever has to agree to. And so on and so forth. Any questions about the nature of the argument that we're using? Anything at all? All right. Let's let's deal with the number one objection to Christianity. The number one objection to Christianity. You don't have notes for this, so um, I will speak very slowly. No, I I will I will keep speaking. But the number one objection to the possibility that Christianity can be true. Um, we've talked about the theistic proofs, the arguments for the existence of God. The number one atheistic proof or argument against the existence of God is the problem of evil. Problem of evil. I think we introduced this uh, in one of our lectures up to this point, just briefly. So let's, let's articulate it again. Uh, we have to start with two qualities or characteristics of God to get the problem of evil going. First is that God is good. That God is good. And the second is that God is all-powerful. So if God is good, he would want all good things to happen. If God is all-powerful, he would be able to make all good things happen. Right? And as Christians... Do I have any option to wiggle out from God is good or God is all-powerful? The answer is no, not really. Not if I'm going to be faithful to Scripture. We're going to see there, there are attempts to wiggle out from those, but I don't think they're Christian options. Okay? So God is good. He, he would want everything good to happen. He is all-powerful. means he's capable of doing it. Here's the third premise, but there is evil. There is pain. Thus, that kind of God who is all good and all powerful can't exist. That's the conclusion. Right. Now that's potent. It's very powerful. And it's powerful two ways. Two ways. And, and it's good to keep these distinct in our minds because it, I think it's just helpful in terms of dealing with people. There is a problem of evil that is the logical problem of evil. Right. That's what we just looked at. Premise one, premise two, premise three, therefore conclusion. That's a logical problem of evil. Um, what gets even more um, difficult is when we're dealing with the, I'll explain what I mean by this, the existential problem of evil. It's one thing for a person to say premise one, premise two, premise three, therefore that kind of God can't exist. But most often, practically, what we're dealing with is not someone who's gone through the premises, it's someone who says, my child died of cancer. God can't exist. And it, and it isn't so much that they're going through the logical argument, is that they are saying this kind of pain, this evil, could not happen if God exists. If God exists. Right? And we've all known people. In fact, we may have been that person who at least asked that question. And, and that kind of question is not a question that only unbelievers have ever asked, right? We see it in Job, and we see it in David in the Psalms. Um, that, that God, if you are who you say you are, how can this be? Right? 
see it in Lamentations. Uh, Jeremiah weeping over the destruction of God. If you are who you say you are, how can this be? Um, so we have both the logical and the existential problem of evil. Alright, so how do we answer this? How do we go about answering this challenge to the Christian faith? And there are infinite variety of answers. I'm sorry, infinite variety of forms that this challenge can take. Uh, it can be a personal thing. You know, I lost a child. It can be um, reflecting on Old Testament narratives. You know, how can you believe in a God who would say, go into the Amalekites and wipe out every man, woman, and child? Or, I was listening to another debate this week, um, Psalm, I believe, Nah, I'm not going to get it. I thought it was in the 130s. And if I don't find it quickly, I'll just, uh, I'll just quote it. Yeah, Psalm 137. Um, likely a psalm from the exile. Um, it begins, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion and talks about the taunting of the Babylonians. Sing us a song of Zion. And, and, and the, the Jews say, how can we sing a song? You know, we're in exile. How can we sing the songs of Zion? But at the end, here's, here's, the, here's the glorious conclusion of the song. O daughter of Babylon doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Okay. This is a song that, it, that pronounces a blessing on the one that takes the Babylonian babies and breaks their heads on rocks. Right. Now, the argument is, how can you possibly respect a God like that? Right. Do you see how that's another form of the problem of evil? The, the, the core of the problem of evil is the establishment of a certain baseline of morality or goodness and then holding God to that standard. That makes sense? Right. That gives us a clue of our first answer to the problem of evil. Okay, our, our, our answer is going to be twofold. Our first answer to the problem of evil and I, I'm going to tell you this one's effective but it's a bit cheap. Okay? It's effective but cheap. And, and I'll explain why. The unbeliever says, your God says to smite all the Amalekites. That's evil. Or your God, the God you say exists, let my mother die. How could that happen? Okay. And, and being sensitive to the situation and, and, and obviously all that, one answer is, I understand what you're saying, Mr. Unbeliever, but on your worldview, what evil? Right? On your worldview. I mean, you, you, you're, you're all up in arms that my God says smite the Amalekites. In your universe, what does it matter if a million Amalekites die? Right? It's a, it's a bag of atoms with a spear and another bag of atoms. Who cares? 
What does it matter? You're all up in arms about this. You know, but, but on your worldview, you can't account for it even being evil. Now, why is, why is this effective? Well, it's effective because what you've done is created a, the internal critique of the unbelieving worldview, right? You, you've thrown the burden of proof back on them. Why is it a cheap shot? The reason it's a cheap shot is what the... If the unbeliever is saying... Now, there, there is a place for it. There is a place for that argument. If the unbeliever is saying, we all know this is wrong, and yet your God allows for it, therefore your God doesn't exist, there is a place to come in and undercut his confidence that he can know anything is right or wrong given his, his, his framework. Does that make sense? If he is operating on the assumption, clearly it is evil that my child died, that is, that is just evil, to, to kindly and gently say, again, you're, you're weighing everything. Is this person being stubborn? Is, you know, how, you, how you address it. And, and, and obviously, but I'll say it, even though it's obvious, this is not something you say two weeks after the baby dies, right? We, we, we use uh, common sense and, and good manners. But if the person is being obstinate, this happened, and they're throwing this in your face, this happened, and it is evil, there is a place for saying, I, I, I understand your pain, but I want you to consider on your worldview why are you so upset about that? Justify why you're so upset about that on your worldview. Why is it more evil that this child died than the broccoli died? Right? Again, I, I may not, use, in fact, I'd almost certainly not use exactly that comparison when you're talking about someone's child. But you, it is worthwhile to confront them with that. Why? That's not always the right way to go. The problem of evil, rightly understood and rightly presented, and I'm not saying that it's often rightly presented at you, is not so much saying, here's my standard of right and wrong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge God against my standard of right and wrong. Really, what the unbeliever is doing is an internal critique of Christianity. Does that make sense? See, when I'm doing an internal critique, I'm, go, I'm going to the unbeliever and I'm saying, I'm going to assume the, the, the standards that make up your worldview and show that if I assume those things, it all falls apart. The unbeliever is saying, I'm going to assume a basic Christian worldview. And in a Christian worldview, is there morality? Is there right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Well, in a Christian worldview, yes, there is. And the unbeliever is... is can legitimately say then, given your own premises, it seems that you've got a problem with your God. That makes sense. That's a different sort of thing than saying, I have my standard and I'm holding God to your standard. They're saying, Christianity has a standard. And your God doesn't seem to fit your standard. Okay. So yeah, that's, a, that's a different thing. It's an internal critique of Christianity. How do we answer that? So we, we've given one answer, and, I, and again, I've suggested that's not answering the internal critique. 
It is an answer. It, there are circumstances that I think call for that answer, but it isn't an answer of the internal critique of Christianity. Let's consider some possible answers. Um, let's first, when we're doing our theology, uh, when, when we're defending Christianity, we have to do it in a way that's consistent with Christian theology, right? We, we talked about that at the outset of, of, of our class, that, that it's very important to think through what our theology is before we talk about how we're going to defend it. Um, so, with the Trinity, for instance, when we're going to do the theology of the Trinity, uh, what, what you find is that our best Trinitarian thought is often negative. I understand what I mean by that? The, the idea is this. In the history of the Christian church, in the history of doctrine, the church has, uh, over time, said, okay, you can't say this and be orthodox about the Trinity. Right? You can't say that, that the differences among the persons are just illusions. Right? If you said that, You've gone the wrong direction. Right? You can't say that we have three gods. If you say that, you've gone wrong somewhere in your thinking. Right? Now, if you ask me, say how they are one and three, I've got, I've got problems there. Right? That's very hard to do. But I do know in doing Trinitarian thought, that if I say that, I've gone the wrong way. Does that make sense? It's a negative theology rather than a positive theology. The problem of evil gives us opportunity to do a very similar thing. What are things that I can't say? That, that if I go this way, I know I've gone the wrong way in my defense of God. Well, here's a couple. First, if I deny that God is all-powerful, I've gone the wrong way. And we're going to look at uh, positions that do that. This to me is the, the big one, the, the, the next one. If I have a system in which evil is necessary, I've gone the wrong way. Okay. Now, that's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very, very difficult. Because... The unbeliever wants to know, how in your universe can there be evil? And as soon as I say, well, there's evil because, I've come very close to, to saying, there needs to be evil. You see that? It, as soon as I say, there's evil because, and in fact, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a really big problem here. I think we talked about this very early in class. Is my existence necessary? Theologically. Am I necessary? No. I have to keep that creator-creature distinction, right? God is necessary. I am not. Could God have created a universe in which I don't exist? Absolutely. I am not necessary. But here's our problem. And, and I'm giving you a clue here. We're going to run up against the edge of our brain. <laughs> doing this. this is, we're going we're gonna to run into the, two issues where 
I, I hit the edge of where I can think. And, and maybe I can, I can guess what's out there a little bit further, but I've hit the end. Okay, I'm going to explain why that isn't a problem, but, but here's, here's what happens. So I'm not necessary. Did God create me? Yes. Does God do what's always perfect? Could God do something different that's still perfect? And that seems to be hairy, doesn't it? Right? The perfect being always does the most perfect thing. Here's something different than that. Is it still the perfect thing? It, it, you, you feel the tension there, right? You feel the tension. And, 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 and as, soon as, I, as soon as I say God created me and God's perfect, and so God always does the perfect thing, and, and so God will always do the perfect thing, the fact that he created me almost seems to make me necessary. But I know that's wrong. So, so here's a place where I've got my logic, and it takes me to a certain conclusion that can't be right. All right? It's going to be the same thing with evil. Here we have a universe that God has created. Is there evil in this universe? And the answer is yes. Okay, We're going to look at a position that says, no, there is no evil. But is there evil? Yes, there is evil. Um, is evil necessary? Do you see the problem having evil necessary? If evil is necessary, then we really have an, an Eastern mystic yin-yang sort of universe, an ultimate dualism. Does that make sense? And that's not Christian. In the Christian worldview, God is, and evil didn't have to be for God to be. In an Eastern mystic universe, you have to have these balancing forces. You know, you to go Star Wars. You have to have the light side and the dark side of the force, that kind of thing. The Christian worldview, we don't need the light side and the dark side of the force. There was an eternity with no sin, right, before God created. All right, so, um, if I come to the position that evil is necessary or that God is weak, I, I come to a sub-biblical answer, and I can't go that way. So what we're going to see is a number of answers. Some of them are just blatantly false. Some of them have bits of truth in them that I think are valuable as answers. Um, and, th and then we're going to see ultimately where I have to go uh, in, in, in doing my apologetics. Any questions so far? Does this make sense? Do you feel the weight of the problem? I want you to feel the weight of the because be Because honestly, I can't give the unbeliever a fair hearing or a fair answer until I feel the weight of his objection. And this objection is the weightiest one. Right. I have one question. Yeah. For this, I think it was a week or so ago. There was a sin before man's sin. That was Satan's sin. Sure. Spiritual sin. Sure. There yeah. was a sin before man's sin. Right. Yeah. And, and I, in terms of the corruption of the universe and all, Scripture lays the weight on Adam's sin. But yes, I, I agree with you that, that Satan's, sin, Satan's fall had to occur before that. <clears throat> All right, so here are some possible answers to the problem of evil. We've already looked at one. Evil doesn't exist. All right, this is more of a like Christian science um, uh, or 
Mary Baker Eddy, you know, illness is an illusion, that kind of thing. Um, does scripture treat evil as an illusion, that it just doesn't exist? Does scripture treat it? No, it doesn't. Scripture does not treat it that way. It, it, according to scripture, evil does exist. All right? Here's the second one. This is closely related to it. Let me, I'm going to camp here, but just briefly. Evil is privation. Evil is a lack of something. Someone <coughs> mentioned this argument to me earlier in this class. I don't know if, was it, okay. Uh, that evil is a lack of something. That evil doesn't really exist, but evil is a lack of good. You've heard an argument like, so the argument is darkness doesn't really exist. Darkness is an absence of, absence of light. Cold doesn't really, cold is an absence of heat or something along those lines. Evil doesn't really exist. Evil is just an absence of good. Um, I don't want to get into this too deeply, but we have enough background that I can do this quickly. We talked about Plato and the forms, right? The ideas, the universals, right? The, the world of perfect things. Remember, Plato said, I can know those things. Those are stable. I can know the perfect triangle. I remember the perfect triangle from when I used to live in the world of forms, that kind of thing. And, and what Plato says is the perfect triangle is real. The, the triangle I draw on the board that's misshapen and disconnected, I, I can call it a triangle, but it's an imperfect shadow. It, it lacks, here's Plato's term, it lacks reality, right? Reality is the perfect triangle. My inferior triangle doesn't have the full reality. And, and, and really, material things aren't as real as the ideas. Perfect things are real. Imperfect things move down the scale of being. That makes sense. Augustine, the church theologian of, of around 300 or so, um, his Christianity was largely shaped in Platonic categories. Okay, so Augustine is one. Who, who really embraced and, and, and popularized this privation theory of evil. Augustine was one who said, evil doesn't exist. Evil is a lack of something. Do you see how that fits in a Platonic worldview? That, that if the perfect triangle has being, and the imperfect triangle lacks being, the further I go away from perfection, the more I lack existence. If I move up the scale, I have more existence, if I move down the scale, I have less existence. Something that's evil has no existence. Right. Um, well, I, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that I am the intellectual peer of Plato. I don't think Plato's worldview is fully biblical. Okay? And so the, the, the philosophical framework that allows me to say evil doesn't exist, I think is, is unbiblical. Um, frankly, I don't see scripture as presenting evil as merely a lack of something. Right? That, uh, for instance, even in, even in the way the Bible talks about sin, that um, my sin is reckoned to Christ. 
It's not talking about my lack of something. That doesn't even make sense, right? It's hard enough to imagine a transfer of immaterial something. It's even harder to transfer a lack of an immaterial something. That makes sense, or not? <laughs> um, I, I I just don't think this is compatible with scripture. I think it's well intentioned. I just don't find it uh, supported by scripture. Right? Three, God is weak. Uh, God is weak. Uh, you're familiar with the book? This is very popular, probably nearly two decades ago now. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, the Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Kushner, Kushner. Um, and Kushner's answer was essentially, God doesn't want those things to happen, but he really can't stop them. Okay? God doesn't want those things to happen, but he really can't stop them. Um, this is an astoundingly popular answer, even among some Christians, right? 9-11 happens, and people say, why did God let that happen? And you have well-meaning Christians saying, God didn't let that happen. That wasn't God's plan. Well, that's a problem to say that. That's a problem to say that. Um, just very quickly, turn to Acts. Turn to Acts. I don't want to get fully into the debate, can God ordain evil? Um, it, it is a debate. Let me give you one verse that I think answers the debate. Acts chapter 2. Verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, speaking to the Jews, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. If we were to ask the question, what is the most evil thing that has happened in human history. I think you have two possible answers. What would those two answers be? The crucifixion and the fall of Adam. Okay, those are the, the only, I think those are the only two answers in the debate. Right? And here you have Peter saying that one of those two was God's determined purpose. Did God plan the death of Christ? And the answer is yes. Does God planning the death of Christ let wicked men off the hook for doing it? No, because Peter calls them wicked men. Right? Does that make sense? No. I don't get it. But it's biblical. Okay? And the argument would go from the lesser to the greater. If the worst thing that has ever happened was ordained by God, the lesser evils are also ordained by God. You can't have you can't suggest that this God could ordain the worst evil ever and not ordain the lesser. That biblically I can't go that route. In fact, we've already argued that the reason I can know anything whatsoever 
is that God has already fought it, right? That my mind doesn't correspond to the rack over there, but my mind has to correspond to God's thinking about the rack over there. But this rack is a revelation of God, right? Because God has spoken that, ultimately, through, through secondary causations and such. Um, but, but I know that because God has ordained it so. If there are pockets in this universe that are rogue, right? Not Sarah Palin, but they're, they're rogue, right? They, they are uncontrolled by God, not ordained by God. I'm in the same position as the unbeliever whose irrationality can upset his rationality at any moment. Right? The universe is exhaustively controlled by God. And I can't go to any answer on the problem of evil that says, well, evil exists and God's doing his best, but just can't get it under control right now. But he's working on it. Okay? That's a serious, serious theological error. Um, in some forms we call that open theism. God is learning. Right? And that's serious theological error. I'm, I'm, I'm happy enough to consider that heresy. Right? Someone who says that God doesn't know what's going to happen, but boy, is he good at dealing with things when they come up. Okay? That's heresy. That's, that's outside the bounds of what Scripture allows us to say about this issue. We're out of time. Next week, we will continue to talk about the problem of evil. I will have notes for you, and then we'll talk about the canon of Scripture. Yes? So, he mentioned uh, faith in heaven. We say Adam in Christ. I, I don't deny that. But sure. wouldn't you actually try to tie that further back to Satan than you would to Adam? Because because I've heard of it as the angelic conflict, you know, and that happened before even the idea that Adam even had the notion that right. Yeah, I, I'm I'm inclined to put the weight on Adam only because scripture does. Well not that, not that we're not accountable to this. Right. But I mean so then you think back and you say, Why would God create Lucifer, right. knowing right. that Lucifer would take a third of the angels before he created, right. right? And that's and that's the other the and other part of me, right? Yeah, knowing it, Adam was sin and the other part of saying God doesn't control it, but He knows everything. If He knows everything, then you, know, you still have you just moved the problem back one layer. Um, so, like I said, we'll, we'll talk about what I think the answer is next week, but, but we've seen the deficiency <laughs> so far. Oh, man.